Welcome to Season 8 of The Global Inquirer. We're an undergraduate research podcast based in the University of Virginia, and each week we bring you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Emma Ross. Today, I'm sitting down with two of our researchers to bring you a story about the country of Kyrgyzstan. We're sitting down with Alma Wolf, a second-year Russian and Foreign Affairs major, and Maggie Sparling, a second-year History and Econ major with a minor in Foreign Affairs. In this episode, we're about to take you a little bit deeper in a country called Kyrgyzstan, which is located in about Central Asia. Our story mainly focuses on a contested parliamentary election, which occurred this past October in 2020, which caused the country to fall into a certain amount of disarray. Alma, would you like to start us off and give us a little bit of background in this event that just happened? Yeah, thank you so much, Emma. So what we're looking into today is the country of Kyrgyzstan. They have an interesting history with elections in general. Over the last 15 years, three presidents have been unseated by protesters. Kyrgyzstan is kind of seen as a beacon of democracy in Central Asia. You know, some people would say that that's a little bit overstated, but ever since the fall of the Soviet Union, they have had the most democratic track record of former Soviet states. As we get into our podcast today, we're going to look at the 2020 parliamentary election that was annulled because it was seen as not free and fair. We're also going to be looking at the 2005 and 2010 elections, which turned into revolution due to the amount of civil unrest that followed. We're going to look at the three cases of revolution in Kyrgyzstan over the last few years. And, you know, I think that this topic it really hits close to home right now because we did experience the in the United States on January 6th when protesters stormed the Capitol building. And so we can kind of, you know, relate with these Kyrgyz people who are experiencing this upheaval of their democracy every so often. I just think it will be interesting to dig into the case studies of this other democracy that has definitely gone through some periods of unrest. Yeah, you really brought us a really interesting episode this season, I think, especially because we don't really hear a lot about Kyrgyzstan. And you've had a pretty interesting duration that you've been researching across. I think you started research for this episode maybe earlier in the fall semester, and now it's uh, currently end of January, to the point where we're currently recording this episode in January 2021. But to the point I mentioned earlier, Kyrgyzstan isn't a country that we hear a lot about. So make a pitch to our listeners. Why should they care about this small country far away in East Asia when we're over here in the United States, most of us, minding our own business, trying to take care of our own problems during the time of COVID. Maybe Maggie, you have something to add? Yeah, absolutely, Emma. So in the past, the US hoped to establish greater influence in the region, especially at the end of the Cold War when the Soviet Union collapsed. We had a military base in Kyrgyzstan, which we used during the Afghanistan war to launch materials and supplies into the region. So when Russia was more absent from the scene, we weren't quite sure how strong they were gonna be. We sought a greater role in the region. We have since closed that base and conceded influence to Russia in the region. Uh, Russia also has a military base located in Kyrgyzstan, and they benefit from that regional stability. What that stability looks like and what form it takes doesn't really matter to Russia, as long as the broader interests in Kyrgyzstan and the region align with the Kremlin. Russia's southern border has historically been a way for extremism and terrorism to kind of infiltrate into Russia, and so they just really want to maintain an element of stability there. Kyrgyzstan also benefits from having a strong relationship with Russia. A lot of migrant Kyrgyz work and travel to Kazakhstan and Russia for work. The remittances they send back make up a large part of the Kyrgyz economy. And so therefore both Russia and Kyrgyzstan benefit from having a strong relationship with each other. 
So at the end of the day, the United States is not directly interested in what happens in Kyrgyzstan, besides the broader element of maintaining stability. However, the U.S. does care about Kyrgyzstan by extension in its relationship to China, which we'll discuss later in this episode, and Russia, and just that broader geopolitical balance. Yeah, so I think Alma mentioned earlier another really interesting reason why we're focusing on Kyrgyzstan or why it's of particular interest, as she mentioned earlier, is because it's one of the few democracies in this region and in the post-Soviet world. So we can see what happens there and tie direct lines to other countries who are aspiring democracies. So the development of Kyrgyzstan as a democracy is of particular note, and I think For the purposes of this episode, let's take our listeners back to a time when it wasn't a democracy, say the 1990s. That is a really good point. So as, you know, many of us probably are aware, before 1991, most of the region involving Russia and Eastern Asia, Central Asia was the Soviet Union. And in 1991, control by the Communist Party inside the Soviet Union was weakening a lot, especially due to the coup in August that made Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the secretary of the Communist Party, essentially made him irrelevant and kind of put control in the hands of Russia's president. And so after the coup on August 31st, Kyrgyzstan's Supreme Council ratified a declaration of independence. It was It's called the Declaration of State Independence of the Republic of Kyrgyzstan. They declared their independence from the Soviet Union through this document. So on December 26th, when Gorbachev stepped down as the secretary of the Central Communist Party, Kyrgyzstan's secession from the Soviet Union was recognized. And that was really the beginning of their democratic journey. So as we witness the birth of a new country, I'm just curious, Kyrgyzstan isn't the only post-Soviet country that's coming out of this. It has a bunch of neighbors, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, who also issued their own independences, but they don't turn out to be as successful as democracies as Kyrgyzstan. So maybe going through the story a little bit further might help shed light on the particular successes of Kyrgyzstan. So maybe you could continue the story. I'm also interested in any particular moment that sheds light on the question of why Kyrgyzstan is succeeding. Emma, that is a really interesting question that you bring up. And, you know, I think one thing important to consider is that Within each of those countries, there was different balances of control of the the Communist Party, the Communist political organization, and more nationalist organizations. So following that coup, they kind of decided to declare their independence at different stages, and it really depended on the balance of the nationalist and communist forces within the countries. And, you know, one thing I think was particularly influential for Kyrgyzstan, and one reason that they have, you know, succeeded in their democracy for a long time is because of the leadership that came out of their Declaration of Independence. And so their first president was Askar Akayev, and he was a political elite in the time of the Soviet Union, and then it just made sense for him to transition to the presidency. But when he started his first term as president, he implemented a bunch of reforms meant to increase democracy and decrease centralized power. So he passed a lot of legislation to take power away from himself, even though later on he kind of was trying to concentrate power in his own hands again, he had already passed a lot of laws that limited that power. And so he had cut himself off from becoming more of a dictator in the ways that some of those other Central Asian republics did end up with dictatorships. Based on your description of President Akayev, it's very interesting. He seems like a very non-committal or sort of waffling figure in Kyrgyz power at the time. I was wondering if you could maybe expand on him a little bit and 
expand on these contradictions. Yes, he is definitely a key figure. Eventually, the the revolution in 2005, known as the Tulip Revolution, he was involved with that as well. In order to learn more about Akayev and just the key figure that he was, Maggie and I decided to sit down with a professor from Arizona State University named Dr. Margaret Hansen, and she specializes in dictatorships and governments in post-Soviet states. And she's done field work in Kyrgyzstan, has talked with many people about the various revolutions over the years. And she had some great insight into Akayev and just kind of the contradictory person that he was. My research focuses on authoritarian governance, particularly in Central Asia. So I've spent quite a bit of time in the field there, predominantly in Kazakhstan, but also in the other countries in the region. The Republic leaders, so in Kyrgyzstan, in the Kyrgyz SSR, the Kazakh SSR, etc., most of them transitioned into the role of president. And this happened in Kyrgyzstan, but the person who happened to be in that position at the time that Kyrgyzstan became independent was really a compromise candidate. So there had been a split among the elites and Moscow had taken a pretty hands-off approach and not choreographed the succession. When Akayev came to power, he didn't really have any kind of a unified base of support. Politics in Kyrgyzstan has long been split between the north and south in terms of groupings of elites. So he initially embarked on a lot of liberalizing reforms that really made Kyrgyzstan, the darling of the West in the region in a lot of ways, because it was seen as this island of democracy. But those descriptions later appeared far too hasty, because when Akayev won a second term, he started really cracking down on opposition uh, and concentrating power within his family. Uh, In fact, he alienated a lot of the coalition that he had initially built. Uh, But he did this in conditions where economic and political power uh, had already been dispersed by his early moves. This later came to bite him in the rear, so to speak. So as Dr. Hansen said, Akayev was trying to concentrate power in his own hands, and he won another election in 2000. But international observers said the election was not free and fair. So there was already a little bit of dissatisfaction with his leadership. Then the 2005 parliamentary election rolls around and many candidates were actually barred from running. And so those elections incite mass protests in February of 2005. And a second round of parliamentary elections held later on sparked even more protests. And so this is known as the Tulip Revolution. And at this point, Akayev, the the president, he is actually forced into exile in Russia and resigns the presidency. So Kyrgyzstan is left without much leadership in this really tumultuous time. Yeah, so even at the onset of this episode, we were talking or we were praising Kyrgyzstan for being a beacon of democracy within an authoritarian sea. But this slice of what it was like pre-2005 Kyrgyzstan shows that even though Akayev implemented a lot of policies that were meant to decentralize power with not free and fair elections, we can see pre-2005 was almost anything but a good democracy. Yeah, and I think you're making a really good point there because Dr. Hansen definitely, you know, emphasized that as well, that 
it's definitely the most democratic state in the region. And so we kind of see it as a beacon, but in reality, many of their elections by international observers are not seen as free and fair. Okay, so if Akayev was forced into exile in Russia after the Tulip Revolution in 2005, who's his successor, what's he like, and what does he do for the country? Thankfully, Kyrgyzstan was able to get back on track after the 2005 unrest. A newly elected parliament appointed Kormanbek Bakiev as acting president, and then he won the popular vote in July of 2005. So by the end of 2005, Kyrgyzstan had a functioning government again. Bakiev won the presidency, but obviously that means someone lost, and his opponent, who was from a different political party who had very opposing views, his name was Felix Kulov, and in a move to try to bring unity to this newer government, Bakiev decided to appoint his opponent Kulov as his prime minister, so the two of them would be heading the Kyrgyz government. You know, he did this in order to bring unity and to try to speak to and reach all Kyrgyz on all sides of the political spectrum. However, this appointment and their shared government made the next five years very turbulent. Their respective parties in parliament, just there was a lot of infighting between their their parties and um, there was continued corruption in the government. So that spurred periodic protests. In in 2006, Bukiev signed a new constitution limiting his powers because there was protests in Bishkek. And then in 2007, there were more parliamentary elections and Bakiyev's party won most seats in parliament and the opposition won none. So international observers were like, that's probably not a free and fair election. So then in 2009, very turbulent again, Bakiyev wins re-election, but again, they say that the vote was likely fraudulent, not free and fair. And in April of 2010, there are protests throughout the whole country, and Bakiyev is removed from power. Everything about this little slice of history that you just described just screams turbulence and instability. So it makes me think that at this point, you're leading up to another period of unrest, maybe similar to the Tulip Revolution that happened, but in a different context. Is this true? Definitely, yes. So when Bakiyev is removed from power in April of 2010, this is essentially just another revolution. And the same month in April, voters approved another new constitution that it was meant to limit the powers of the presidency. And it was an attempt to create a parliamentary republic. The people were really unhappy with how their elected officials were handling the country. And so they decided to take matters into their own hands. So there was meant to be a, another election in October of 2010 in order to elect new parliamentary officials. These elections did not produce a clear winner. So that also just speaks to the nature of how turbulent and uncertain this time was for many Kyrgyz people. So after that, what they did was they created a coalition government and they had several people running the country for a few years. Nothing really major happened again until 2017. And that was when in October, Sarunbe Jeanbekov is elected the new president. This was seen as a little bit fishy because his main rival was imprisoned a few weeks before the election. But Jean Bakov was the president who was deposed or who resigned the most recent 2020 revolution. Jean Bakov was the president. He was trying to get things back on track like the other presidents had. But again, we arrived at another parliamentary election in 2020. And this is the one that we introduced at the top of the episode, 
that again was the election results were annulled and there, it was widely protested and that eventually led to Jane Bakov's resignation. Yeah, you can see that we had Akayev, we had Bakiev, these leaders who originally elected, uh, supposedly, and were trying to make the country more democratic, more free. And uh, through the years, whether it was corruption, whether it was you know, political forces, whatever happened, eventually both of those leaders and then this third leader in 2020 were removed from power by the people. That's kind of an overview of the past of revolutions in Kyrgyzstan. Yeah, just really briefly, I wanted to draw a little bit of attention on this one part that you went over, just because it seems really interesting to me and drawing ties as someone who studies the post-Soviet world. How Jen Bakov's adversary or his uh, political opponent was imprisoned before the election, how that seems like such a holdover from Soviet times, how there was no real choice in a lot of elections back in the 90s. You know, there was someone who is the obvious choice. And then if you're in opposition, you're either jailed or sent away. And how this really ties to the modern day too in what's happening in Russia currently with Navalny, who is currently President Putin's somewhat political rival, though he really doesn't like to acknowledge that Navalny poses any real threat to Putin. Nevertheless, you know, currently there was this whole scandal with him being poisoned and he is in jail right now. This, I feel, is really similar to what happened in Kyrgyzstan in 2017 that you were just talking about with Ben Bakov's adversary being in prison before the election and how this seems to be happening all over the post-Soviet world. And that's just something really interesting to keep an eye out for. Kind of initiated the whole subject of this podcast, the 2020 revolution. Alma kind of covered what triggered these events and what sparked them and what was leading up to them. But Really, Maggie, I think you can dig deeper for us about what the implications of this revolution were and really the bigger meaning behind all of this. Sure, Emma. So I think before we go into kind of more of an analysis of it, we first can take a step back and look at the timeline of events, what happened in October and what happened immediately afterwards. So like Alma said, October 4, 2020, they had their parliamentary elections. The opposition called these elections manipulated, unfair. There were allegations of vote buying, which is not terribly surprising given the country's history with corruption. Nonetheless, you have protests sparked and it quickly spreads across the country. And this is where it's important to remember that history of revolution, that history of electoral unrest that Alma's been mentioning over the past few minutes. People pour into the streets. The initial police response leaves 590 injured, one dead. The protests become even more violent when a small group of protesters tries to break through parliament's gates. Police respond with water cannons, tear gas, and the protesters ultimately stormed the president's office successfully along with other governmental buildings. Two days later, so on October 6, the Central Election Commission annuls the election and calls for a rerun. But despite this, there's a lot of instability, a lack of clarity over who is actually in charge. So we have both the president and the opposition leader claiming authority. We're not even sure where Jim Bakov was during this point in time, which just contributed even more to that element of uncertainty. So on October 6, we have seven opposition parties creating a coordination council, trying to bring greater stability to the country, but they want a kind of like a stability under their rule. These group of opposition parties claim control of the prime ministership and speaker of the parliament. They want to forcibly remove the heads of departments that had been loyal to Jinbakov, kind of clean house. And this is gonna include the mayor of the capital city, Bishkek. But even within this opposition, there's a lot of infighting, a lot of factions over who's going to govern at the national and local level. 
On October 8th, Jim Bacob holds talks with the lawmakers discussing the possibility of his impeachment of resignation. And around this time, the protests have gotten even more violent, even more chaotic, and lead to the release of former top officials from prison, including a former president who had been jailed on corruption charges. But the main release from jail that we're going to kind of focus on, and who will become a key character in the remaining part of this narrative, is Japarov. Japarov was a rival politician. He had been in prison on kidnapping charges. He had allegedly kidnapped another politician. His sentence had been for 11 and a half years. And then one of the important things to remember is that Japarov is a populist and a nationalist politician. He's also kind of a controversial figure within the country. And within this uncertain and chaotic environment, Japarov becomes the acting prime minister just days after being released from jail. The opposition appoints him, although there is a question of the legitimacy of this appointment. Uh, Parliament lacked the quorum to make this decision, and the decision was unsurprisingly rejected by the incumbent president, Jimbakov. Jimbakov asked Parliament to vote again, and there's also, amidst all of this, a lot of uncertainty over what degree of power Japarov will have, especially if Jimbakov resigns as president, as was being discussed at this point. So by October 15th, less than two weeks after the initial election, Jimbakov resigns and Japarov becomes the acting prime minister and the acting president. So there's a lot of power in the hands of Japarov and a lot of questions over how he amassed so much power after having just been released from jail. Questions over his ties to organized crime and a lot of lack of clarity on the general issue. So Maggie, it seems like based on what you just said, there still seems to be a lot of questions as to how Japarov arrived on the world stage via Kyrgyzstan. And what you just said seems to be the international consensus. How do countries such as the U.S. deal with this uncertainty? Because we have to react somehow, I'm assuming. How do we deal with the uncertainty and how do we react to this coup? So I think the two main reactions we're going to look at is, like you said, the United States, but also Russia. So the U.S. embassy in Kyrgyzstan initially encouraged Jimbakov, the incumbent president's electoral win, be respected. This was more of just a diplomatic statement. There wasn't much teeth to it. They weren't going to put any effort behind it. More of just to make a comment on it because it needed to be commented on because the event was so dramatic. Meanwhile, a Russian officer initially offered assistance to Jinbakov's forces to help him maintain power. This officer was quickly fired. Russia largely opted to stay uninvolved. There had been political unrest before in Kyrgyzstan, as we saw in 2005 and 2010, but it never really spilled over into Russia. Russia doesn't really see any reason to get involved. So kind of the international reaction is to let Kyrgyzstan figure itself out. There didn't seem to be any threats of regional stability as a result of the instability caused in October of 2020. Yeah, and I wonder too, I mean, the events that you're describing, at least to me, I'm in my seat feeling like this is some sort of soap opera with all of the back and forth between Jenbakov and Japarov and who actually belongs in power. I feel like even though Kyrgyzstan doesn't seem like that much of an important country because we don't hear a lot of it, it might be in a country like Russia's interest to potentially intervene. So I would have been afraid of that. But also, it seems like as this is happening in Kyrgyzstan, Russia might be preoccupied with the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict that's happening between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and Russia potentially wanting to be an arbiter there and exert its power in this war that's happening versus an internal affair in Kyrgyzstan. So I think that's just some interesting context that we should drop in there for our audience. But zooming back into Kyrgyzstan, how do they move forward with this mixed international reaction? Does it matter to them? Or what are they most concerned with? This seems to largely be like an internal affair. 
So Japuov kind of takes the next few weeks to cement power and to take greater control within the country. New elections were initially set for December 20th, 2020. Japarov quickly signs changes to the electoral law to delay this election and change the law itself. The old electoral law said that Japarov couldn't run for office since he was the acting president. Acting presidents are barred from participating in presidential elections. But Japarov changes this law, delays the election until January 10th, 2021. In November of 2020, he proposed constitutional changes that would expand presidential power and weaken parliament. So in the event he won the election, he would win into a position with much greater power and authority. This would also transition the country from a parliamentary system to a presidential one, a tension we've seen playing out over the past 20, 30 years of Kyrgyzstan's history of democracy. So come time January 10th, the elections take place without the violence that characterized the October elections. Japarov wins with over 80% of the vote. The next closest contestant only had 6.7%. They also passed the constitutional referendum. So Kyrgyzstan is now a presidential system rather than a parliamentary one. So Japarov won with that increased power. There were no major violations. Outside observers declared the election to not be fully fair. The election turnout also critical to note was less than 40%. Again, there's a lot of questions over how Japarov rose to power so quickly, how he amassed that power from being in jail a few months ago to now being the undisputed leader of the country, which kind of sheds light on how corruption and the factionalism within the country influences electoral politics. So you just dropped us off here at January 10th, 2021, um, maybe just a couple weeks ago. So this is all really recent and really relevant. But also as we've been going through the history, there seems to be certain trends that reoccur. Kyrgyzstan's battle between being a democracy that's free and facing internal turmoil that's always kind of holding it back. So maybe because you two have looked so much at the history, you might be able to predict a little bit of what we can expect going forward. Absolutely, Emma. So Margaret Hansen actually discusses this very well. She kind of discusses the tension between the democracy and different possible paths for Kyrgyzstan's future in democracy. So we will let her do It's some an interesting question. I... Kyrgyzstan has a lot of challenges that stand in the way to it becoming a consolidated democracy, particularly economic. So the poor country, overall poor democracies have a pretty high failure rate. My inclination would be to say that it becomes this sort of hybrid or semi-democratic regime is something that becomes stable equilibrium, just to say that there'll be swings towards more authoritarianism, swings towards more competition, never really quite settling on the sort of full liberal democracy that we in the West had when we're picturing democracy. But to a certain extent, that's going to depend if you have somebody who's very skilled at maneuvering the particular political situation in a country. And I think that remains to be seen, but Japarov certainly seems to have shown some of those instincts. There becomes a point where if they essentially outmaneuver their opposition enough times, it becomes difficult for any kind of opposition to coordinate at all because it's just not credible that they can threaten the leader effectively. So if essentially if he man becomes president and manages to win a few rounds, then we're more likely to see a more authoritarian turn. If it remains contested, then probably this sort of unstable hybrid sort of regime that we've we've seen over the 
the past several years. So as Dr. Hansen pointed out, democracy in Kyrgyzstan is a relative term and it can't really be compared to the democracy we often look towards in Western Europe. Alma, do you wanna add more to this and kind of expand on the different ways we can view democracy in Kyrgyzstan? Yes, Margaret Hansen's colleagues, his name is Scott Radnitz and he's actually written a book about the various revolutions in Kyrgyzstan. He has an idea that I think is really interesting to bring up here. Um, so he has also done a lot of research in the field in Kyrgyzstan. His takeaways and his conclusion is that, you know, we usually think of revolutions as this great, like, it, it, they absolutely reflect the will of the people. You know, in a democracy, a revolution would mean that the people are rising up, maybe they're creating a new government, and it's all about individual choice and the, the, the power of the masses rather than any, you know, elites that are involved. However, in Kyrgyzstan, Scott Radnitz says this is really not the case. Because of the way that their government is, there are a lot of independent communities who may not have as many resources as some of the bigger cities like the capital of Bishkek. And so there are a lot of political elites who will kind of um, have a presence in these communities across the country and they'll provide a level of security and stability. And so they create bases of support in these independent communities throughout the country. And so the democratic protests don't necessarily reflect the will of the people, but rather it's actually these political elites and kind of like they're infighting. And because the political elites have so much influence with these support, these bases of support who are those, the communities that they were providing security and stability to, um, that's kind of what sparks these revolutions. And so it's, um, Scott Radnitz says that it's, the, the revolutions are much less, you know, bottom up democracy and much more political elites using these power bases in order to get each other out of office. So I think that is also a really interesting comparison um, just with how we think of revolutions in general and how we think of democracy in general, because like we said, Kyrgyzstan is a, maybe a democratic beacon for the region, maybe not, but um, definitely there are some other kind of political forces at work here that are just unlike anything that we really come to expect with democracy or with revolutions um, in general. I think additionally to all of Kyrgyzstan's turmoil, even though it's internal, it doesn't happen in a bubble. And Kyrgyzstan is somewhat important to Russia to some degree, China maybe to some degree, the U.S. to some degree. Maybe you can kind of lead us a little bit further into the global implications of Kyrgyzstan's inner turmoil. As I was saying, they do seem to be kind of a unique case with their elite-run revolution politics that they have going on. Even though they may be unique in that element of their internal politics, they still fit into the global power balance and are a player, absolutely. So like you said, we discussed earlier their um, ties with Russia and how they play into Russian power politics, but they also have significant ties with China. China has a, an interest in Kyrgyzstan, no doubt, Kyrgyzstan is along China's western border, running along next to the Xinjiang province. And so some of you may have heard of China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is a global infrastructure project that it has been implementing in many countries around the world. But it, were, it was originally planned to go through Kyrgyzstan. So that would mean that there's some Chinese infrastructure development in Kyrgyzstan. There's a lot of controversy in Kyrgyzstan over the Belt and Road Initiative and how much influence China should be allowed to have. China has an interest in keeping extremism in check and generally they just want stability in the region like Russia. Kyrgyzstan is right next to China. They are interested 
in that region just to keep things nice and stable so that it doesn't damage their economy and so that they don't have to worry about any kind of internal politics that could spill over into China. While the U.S. and Kyrgyzstan are not particularly interdependent, you know, as we are with China or Russia, by extension, because we are with China and Russia, Kyrgyzstan is important to us. It's part of the global political balance. So while we care about the global power balance and we care about China, as an American student like myself and Maggie and Emma, um, this is really just an interesting case study to look at. And, you know, we don't want to underestimate that this is people's lives. You know, this is a, a serious situation and we can definitely empathize with that because of what happened in back in January at our own Capitol building. So it is interesting just to look at how Something like the Cold War, which seems so distant to us college students now, but it is really impactful and influential to these modern day political relationships, especially countries that have only been independent for about 30 years at this point. And so what does that look like? You know, it's just an interesting kind of storyline to follow and just to see how these democracies come about, develop and are maintained. And that's our episode. As always, thank you for listening to The Global Inquirer, and thank you to Maggie and Alma for bringing us this week's story. Additionally, a special thank you to Margaret Hansen for her insight. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Consider leaving a comment and liking us on Facebook. And be sure to join us next week.